Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. Hello. Before today's episode, I would like to ask you to please review and rate my podcast because it does help with the ranking and makes it much easier and more visible for people to find. So you would actually be helping individuals like you. Thank you. Hello, welcome to my podcast and my YouTube channel. Today I have a podcaster with us. I actually uh, found her. I was listening to, I think, I don't know if I listened to you in a podcast or your podcast. Oh, I know what. I saw a list of podcasts and yours was one of them. And I said, oh, that sounds interesting. I'm going to listen. And I fell in love with it. And I actually recommend my audience to really listen to it. It's it's called Thriving with Mental Illness. So like me, she talks about a taboo. She's very open, very honest about it. And that's what really attracted me. I mean, just how clear you are and how open you are to talk about your struggles and your families. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for being here. Her name is Mikkel Buck. So I'm going to say again the name of your podcast thriving with mental illness, because I really want my listeners to listen to it. Hello, thank you so much for saying yes and being here with us, Mikkel. I'm so happy to be here. And I'm so glad that you're enjoying the podcast and that it's getting out to people. I just think the most important thing we can do is having open and honest conversations about real issues with mental illness, you know, and a lot of times people don't want to talk about it. And I just think bringing these conversations to the forefront, that's what can really help. That's what can get in and make a difference in people's lives. Yeah. And I'm sure your, your podcast is making a difference. And actually, just so you know, yesterday, because I work in a clinic where six therapists there and yesterday, it's really funny because she, she texted me, Paula, because I'm the only one who is like a podcast freak and listens listens to a lot of podcasts and I use a lot of podcast episodes with my clients and she said Mm -hmm. Paula I know you always know a podcast episode do you have anything on perfectionism and I said oh my god I just listened to a wonderful one and I sent yours to 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 her and she was almost so grateful because I don't know anything about the podcast and and now that we have so many teenagers especially we were actually talking about this before we started the recording how it has affected the pandemic has affected so many, you know, the youth and mm-hmm. teenagers. And, and in, in our practice, most of us now are packed with teenagers. So, and they love to listen to podcasts. So yeah, I always, it's I really the younger them, generation thing. Yeah, it is. So I always send them, I always have something for them to listen to. So she was really grateful and she listened to your episode. And I actually want to start with that, Mikael, if you don't mind. Yeah. Because uh, from what you say, and I don't know the number of the episode, but it's the title is Perfectionism or something like that. So if my listener uh, wants to go straight to that one. 
But I would like to hear from you because that was so moving to me, the, the way that you went back in time to your childhood and, and you started identifying how it all started and how much of a perfectionist you were. And of course, the impact it had on your mental mental health. So can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the title of that episode is called The Dangers of Perfectionism. And it's just one of those things, you know, there's a lot of retrospection that happens when you experience things like mental illness, trying to figure out, you know, where did it go off the rails, so to speak. And, and for me, it was just in the pressure cooker of perfectionism. That's really it. I mean, I had a wonderful childhood. I have loving parents. I've, I've got an amazing family, both growing up and my family now. But the thing that really is, is what triggered all of these symptoms of mental illness for me was just perfectionism and trying to achieve that and the pressure to just do more and be better and not make mistakes. And I mean, that's an impossible feat. And, and the thing is like life is about making mistakes. That's how we grow from experiences. If we do things perfectly, we're never going to learn. So it's kind of a futile and, and a little bit silly approach to take in life, trying to be perfect because you're never going to learn and you're never going to progress that way. But it took me a lot of years to realize that. And, and where did that come from? If you say, oh, I had a great parents, they were loving and yeah. great family. So was that something that was internally was maybe your I think trait? a lot of it was internal. My family was a very high achieving family. Mm. I grew up, all of us grew up in competitive sports and we all went on and had scholarships to college in our sports. So there was a very high level of achievement that kind of came with my family. And my parents never told me that they expected perfection from me. This was just something internally that I told myself. So I wanna be clear about that. This wasn't something that other people put on me. This was just something that I experienced in my own, you know, tiny Mikhail mind growing up. That's, that's what I thought the expectations needed to be and should be. And that was ultimately my demise really. Mm-hmm. If I have a listener, so. maybe I'm sure I have a few listening to you right now and they say, am I a perfectionist? So how can, how can they know? What, what are the thoughts that you have and what is like the behavior, everyday behavior? Is it something related to you're just never happy with what you do? I mean, what does that yeah. look like? For me, it was always feeling like it was never good enough. And no matter how good it was, I always would think back and, oh, but if I could have just done this part better and, oh, if I could have just done that better, you know, and, and no matter what measure of success I had, the only things my brain would focus on was what wasn't done perfectly. And it always came with knots in my stomach and a lot of anxiety and trouble sleeping, but just really, it really was just constantly feeling like I was never good enough. And that's just not a healthy attitude to have. And it's not a healthy perspective for children or anyone to grow up in. Mm-hmm. And what, what, took, what took you to realize that this is not healthy, I need to change? Well, for me, I mean, this went on for years. And the buildup and buildup, I got to the point where I attempted suicide. And it was when I woke up in the hospital after that attempt that I realized the gravity of what had just happened, number one, but two, the realization of what I was doing got me here. 
And I will never do that again because I'm not going to lose my life to mental illness. I'm not going to lose my life to suicide. That's not going to happen. So I will change whatever I need to in my mindset, in my life, with expectations, whatever is happening, I will never get to this space again. And so I had to just rethink how I thought about and how I approached everything in my life. Hmm. And, and what did you have to change? And I have to say, one of the things that I learned I heard you say, and I've been using that with my clients from now on. Uh, I, it's so simple, but it makes all the all the it makes so much sense to me. You say that you can't expect to feel differently if you don't make changes in your life, right? And we see that so often. Uh, we, especially, I mean, for us therapists, many times clients come to us with all these struggles and all these problems, and we talk to them, okay, how about changing this? How about we can alter that? And oh, I can't do that. No, I can't do that. No, I can't do that. And I'm going, wow, you have to change something. And, right. and that's and that's what you say. And I've heard you say it more than once. If you don't change something in your life, you're, you're going to feel right. the same. Well, right? that's the definition of insanity, right? Keep <laughs> the same the same actions, but expecting something different. Something like it's different. never going to be different if you don't change your actions. And for yeah. me, I had to change my circumstances. I, for me, I had to get some weight off my shoulders. I had a lot of, uh, I had three small children at the time and just pushed myself in too many areas. And for me, I had to change my situation in getting medication, getting help from a psychiatrist because I was still feeling like I can just push through this. Like I'm strong enough that I don't need help to do this. And Like, that's not what mental illness is. Mental illness is a physical problem in your brain that it, the brain isn't communicating the way that it's supposed to. So of course you need physical help for a physical problem. And I think that that's a common misconception when people experience mental illness in not wanting to get physical help, like through medication and things like that. But you're exactly right. Like I had to change the weight on me. I had to change the way that I did things. We pulled out of a lot of activities as a family. We just simplified everything in our lives because I had to change my circumstances if I was going to expect a different result. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to, I just want to tell my listeners that next week your husband would be with us, would be here with us, which would be great because we thought we were debating, should we do this together? Both of you on the same episode, but I said, no, you know what? I think they have, my audience has so much to learn from him, his perspective of mm -hmm. dealing and having someone in his family with mental illness and also the suicide attempt and how he dealt with it. And there is actually another wonderful episode. It's him giving tips to spouses, right? So that's yeah. something we're going to talk about next week, but I want to go back to your mental illness. So did it take a suicide attempt to realize that you were struggling mentally? I mean, or were there symptoms before that you just chose to ignore? You know, I did have symptoms before that, but for me, the mental illness didn't manifest the way that I would expect it to. I didn't have any experience with mental illness. To my knowledge, I didn't have anybody in my family that experienced this. And I just, I was very uneducated about it. Mm -hmm. And I expected mental illness to just be, you know, crying all the time or wanting to die. And I didn't feel like that. Mine was more, my sleep was affected and my energy levels were affected. So it took me a long time to realize that what I was dealing with and experiencing was actually mental illness. 
I had, we'd been getting blood tests. I thought it was thyroid. I thought it was so many different things, but that's actually a common way for mental illness to manifest. And I didn't know it. So mm. we knew something was wrong, but we didn't know what it was for a lot of years. Yeah. And what kind of changes on daily basis here? Because I'm, I'm always thinking about someone who is listening and they say, wow, that that's happening to me. What do I, what, what, where should I start changing? So yeah. how, how were this changing progressed with you? And how did you know what to, you said I had to minim, maybe become a minimalist or just simplify your yeah. life, take some stuff off my shoulders. So what would you say to someone who is listening right now and who says, well, I need to make changes, but where do I start? Uh, the biggest thing for me was learning how to manage what I've kind of termed as my energy budget and energy budget is just like a financial budget, you know, deposits give you more energy and withdrawals take energy away, but you just have to figure out specifically what are the things in your life that give you more energy and what are the things that take away too much energy and, and they're going to be different for people. The basic things though, making sure you have enough energy are getting plenty of sleep. I need more sleep than my husband. So, you know, eat, sleep and exercise to me are basics that I need to do. They don't solve mental illness by, you know, by any stretch, but if you feel well enough to do them, that's part of the management component, you know, and to me, I had to get medication. That was the biggest step. And once I was medicated, then I could go on to the management component of, you know, not having too many things scheduled in my day, making sure I had downtime, uh, quiet time with the kids. Like we used to be very busy in a lot of out outside activities, you know, football and soccer and PTA I see this so much here kids. in America. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, it, it just seems like being a parent, it's just so much. It's sports, yeah. it's dance, it's music, school. And oh my goodness, it's just busy. It really is. And, and that's what we had to completely turn around. I stopped volunteering at school. I, we pulled out of all of our activities and we just tried to spend quiet time at home. Quiet time at home is very rejuvenating for me. And, you know, I don't know if that is for everyone. And I also need more alone time, maybe than what other people do. Being in crowds is a huge drain for me. I don't, socializing is a huge drain. And I, I know for my son, he loves socializing. That gives him energy back. So mm -hmm. for him, that's a deposit. But for me, it's a big withdrawal. So you just have to figure out, you know, you yourself, know yourself very well. What, what kind of things do you need to cut back on? And what kind of things do you need to put more of? Like, you know, my alone time, I like to go hiking with nobody around and no noise. Like that gives me a lot of energy and it makes it so I can cope with, you know, if I have a social event that night, but I really cut back on social events. I mean, I go out every other night. There's no way I can go out two nights in a row. I'm very careful about what I say yes to. I say no to most things. And in some ways it was the best thing that ever happened to my life because it really made me prioritize what are the most important things to me. And those are the things that I say yes to. And I found that there were many things in my life that actually weren't the most important things that were taking away from, you know, the people and things were, that were the most important to me. And, and this like crisis, this suicide attempt and mental illness experience really gave me a reason to say yes and to say no. And And now the things that I spend my time and energy on in my life are, are the things that I feel very passionate about and that I love. And it's, it's made my life more fulfilling and better. Mm -hmm. I have so many things to say that I don't even know where to start right now. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about your suicide attempt, but I want to, there, there is something that you, something you mentioned and uh, just so my listener knows, you don't, you do your podcast with your husband, Adam. And yes. You, and we did that because yeah. he has a different experience. Like he has valuable experiences that mm-hmm. I don't have. And you know, same with me. So it's, Plus it's, it's fun. Great. Really fun it's great. It's great. Yeah, it's yeah. great. It's perfect. It just goes, you know, back and forth, but both of you add so much to it. But I remember you mentioning, and he was agreeing with you talking about this energy budget mm-hmm. that you came up with this uh, expression energy budget. And also saying that when you're married, you have to balance that as well because the energy budget is different for both and you have to be able to talk about that and say listen this i can't do this today so talk mm-hmm. tell us a little bit i mean how did you how did you c- come to that with him that i kind of fell into this example by accident my husband loves to go meet new people and visit neighbors and there were some new neighbors that had moved in and he just kept like come with me to meet him come with me to meet him and i was really overspent at that point and i mm-hmm. finally told him look if i go meet these new neighbors i have 20 emotional dollars if i go meet them it's going to take 18 and that means i have 2 dollars left to deal with the kids all day tomorrow and like he really understood that And that's kind of where the concept of the energy budget was born. And it's helped us so much in our communication to recognize, like, I'm going to be overspent if I spend here. But also, we found out, like what you were saying, that even if he's the only one that's busy, it still overspends me. So he also has to keep a slower pace and have quiet nights at home so that I don't get overspent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was a that was a great concept to use, and even for my colleagues who do couples therapy, yeah, they should really talk about this because, as you said, yeah. if he keeps going and he's always, you know, uh, having a lot of social socializing to do, and he overworks and he comes home and is agitated, that's going to have an effect on you, right? Right. And he was very, very busy. He had a, a, he's a real estate attorney and he has a time consuming job and he was volunteering at church and in the neighborhood and, and all good things. But I was very overspent by his schedule. And I also wasn't getting the help I needed with the kids. So that's kind of all what led up to the suicide attempt Mm -hmm. is just that situation Mm -hmm. being prolonged the way that it was. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about managing expectations? Because mm-hmm. that's part of being of being a perfectionist too, right? And one of right. the things that comes to mind for me is learning to say no. Because that's one yes. of the things that perfectionists have a hard time doing. They think they can do a lot and perfectly, right? Or I think yes. that's their internal expectation. So how did you, did you have to do that? Did you have to learn to say no? Absolutely. In fact, one of our very first podcasts, episode number four, is called The Art of Saying No without looking like a jerk. And it's the whole, <laughs> just feel bad saying no sometimes, right? You want to help people. You want to step in. I want to be able to say yes, but the reality of the situation is I need to take care of myself and my family before I start meeting other people's needs outside of that circle. And so we did a whole episode on it and to, to figure out, you know, the tricks and secrets of learning how to say no. And, and, 
again, it was waking up in the hospital with that realization, I will do whatever it takes. I will say no to whoever I need to say no to. I will, you know, anything I need to do, I will do so that I'm there for myself and my family and I never get to the situation again. But one of the tricks that I learned in saying no is because the, there's the most pressure to say yes at the invitation of the event, right? When you're put on the spot, that's the, it's hard to say no. So I always say, I'll get back to you. Thank you for thinking of me. I'll get back to you. But that way it always gives me a buffer. Yeah, and then I can, out, yeah. can I say yes to this? Do I want to say yes to this? A lot of times I don't. And so then when I get back, my other trick is, is there a small thing that I can say yes to? So it kind of softens the no, you know, mm-hmm. had somebody mm-hmm. ask if I would host families for, for Christmas time over Christmas. And I said, I'm not, you know, let me get back to you first. And then I sent a text. I'm not able to do that, but I would love to have everybody over for a few hours on Christmas Eve. So, mm-hmm. you know, is there a way to compromise to right? like, and care about them without saying yes to mm-hmm. something that's going to overspend you? If you want more information about suicide, my book is now available on Amazon, both in paperback and digital formats. Just type in the title, Understanding Suicide, or my name, Paula Fontinelli. The book was written for people like you, and it's the result of more than 10 years of conversations with families who lost loved ones to suicide, individuals who attempted suicide, specialists, and mental health professionals. Thank you for your support. Now back to the interview. How did that um, affect your relationships? Were people understanding of that, of this change? Because it sounds like you really underwent a huge change in your life. I did. My whole life had a massive overhaul. My, it, it wasn't even, I feel like myself pre-suicide attempt and myself post-suicide attempt, drastically different people. Like my whole thought process is different. The things that are important to me are different. Like I was just busy trying to accomplish things before the suicide attempt, you know, pushing to be more and try more and do more and, and be perfect at it. And, and afterwards I just realized the only things that really matter are my relationships with the most important people in my life. There are very few things in my life that I actually have to do. And I didn't realize that before but I put a lot of time and energy into spending time with my kids and spending time with my husband. And I have a few friends, people were mostly supportive. I I found the most difficult people who didn't understand were acquaintances that were not in the inner circle. So they weren't getting Mm -hmm. time anymore. And then when they would ask for things and my answer would be no, you know, that was the biggest pushback that I got. And you know, I just had to find consolation in the fact that, you know, you're not in my list of most important people. Yeah. So if yeah. you feel let down by me, it is what it is. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sorry you feel like that, but I can't say yeah. yes to this. So it is what yeah. it is. And, and you're talking about this. I'm thinking about the expectations and being a perfectionist and overdoing and doing more than you sh- you could handle and how that is connected to the feeling that we know you know, from research is related to suicide, which is being a burden, feeling like yeah. you are a burden because I'm just never good enough, right? I'm this person it. who just, his, my bar is just not high enough. 
Yeah. I read an interesting article from the vice president of Magellan Health. He's a psychiatrist and he was talking about suicide. And he said the two main factors that contribute to suicide is feeling like you're not good enough and feeling like you're a burden to other people. And mm -hmm. I will say, absolutely, those things were both true for me. I really yeah. felt like, you know what, people in my life would be better off with someone beside me who, who yeah. didn't have these same kind of limitations. You know, that's mm -hmm. what led to that attempt. But yeah. that, I mean, it's, it's good to identify that and know if we can help the people in our lives, if we ourselves are struggling with mental illness, you know, it's, we're not a burden to other people. And we don't need to be anything more than we already are, but understanding mm -hmm. like I'm important to people because of me, not because of anything I've ever done for them. Just like my kids, you know, it, there's not anything they do that makes me love them more or value them more. I love them as is no matter what exactly the way they are. And I think that it's easy to forget that when you're experiencing mm -hmm. mental illness, sometimes you think your value lies in what you're accomplishing and it's not true. Your value just lies in being you. I love that you say that, and, and also that you 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 felt like a burden because one of the misconceptions that we hear all the time about suicide attempters is that they're selfish. It's the opposite. They really yeah. believe that life life will be better for those around them if they're mm -hmm. if they're gone, right? And I absolutely felt like I was solving a problem for my family. I really felt like, you know, you'll be sad for a minute, but you'll be much better off. I promise you. And yeah. that's why I, you know, had the attempt. That's why I made that decision. It wasn't because I was thinking about myself. It's because I was thinking this was better for everybody. Mm -hmm. Which yeah, of course my, is false. Know that. my father, my father wrote that to me. I, I know it's going to be sad for all of you, but you'll all be better off afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, so I that's a that's a feeling in that I I didn't need to study to know that that's something that goes on in your mind. So, can we go back to that day, to the day that you attempted? What were the thoughts, and and what happened maybe a few days before that led you to that, or was it something that just came? It just grew and grew and grew. Did you did you have like suicidal ideation before? For me, the idea just kind of grew and grew and grew. I thought about it for a very long time, and for me, I never wanted to die. I just wanted everything to stop, and I didn't know how to do it. And those are two different things. And I think it's important for us that we understand the distinction between the two. Wanting everything to stop is a solvable problem. Like we can do that through circumstances. I didn't understand that at the time. Now I know that. And that's what I hope to share with other people experiencing mental illness. Like we can change the circumstances. How you're feeling can stop. It doesn't have to be through death. It doesn't have to be through suicide. Mm -hmm. And you were taken to the hospital. Was that it? Mm -hmm. And How did that affect your family? I mean, it must have been, did they expect, did your husband expect it or did he see the signs at all? He didn't, he was surprised mm -hmm. and alarmed. And I remember he told me though, that he knew that day, he knew that he couldn't leave me alone. And he was busy doing this, that, and he had meetings and he had something else. And 
And I remember in my, I had decided that I was going to take pills, that I was going to end my life. So I had already made that decision. I was just kind of waiting for a, a time period. And I went upstairs and somebody came to the door and I downed a couple bottles of pills. And I remember he came up and I was laying down and I could kind of feel, I mean, everything was just echoey and quiet. And he came up and I could, he was so worried and he wanted to get, he wanted to take me to the emergency room. And I told him that I wasn't going to go. I'm like, I'm, I'm not going, even if it doesn't matter if they can help me, I'm not going because I knew they would be better off. So, mm. and he carried me downstairs and the ambulance came and they took me to the hospital, but I had little kids. My, my oldest was eight and he was at a birthday wow. party at the time. So somebody went to pick him up and he found out that I had attempted suicide as an eight-year-old, you know, and it's very, I feel like the kids are pretty healthy mentally, but especially for my youngest, she was five at the time and it was very traumatic for her. And it, I mean, obviously that's a scary thing. And I remember them all coming to the hospital and they had had me drink charcoal to try to pull all the toxins out. So they didn't get absorbed into my system. And, you know, my mouth was black. And I just remember the look on all of their faces, how worried they were and how scared they were. And that realization that my kids don't want somebody else. There, there isn't another woman who's going to take better care of them than I will. There's no other person that's going to love them more than I will. There's nobody else they want than me. I'm the one that they want. And, you know, I think that really drove that decision that I will do whatever it takes. Like I'm going to be around for them. I'm going to take care of them. I'm not leaving everybody high and dry, but really like I wasn't in the right frame of mind before that. I, it's like, I couldn't think clearly. And when I woke up from that attempt, that was the first time that I feel like this fog was lifted on my, off my brain. And I could understand I was not seeing things accurately. I was not seeing things as they were in reality. I had a very distorted perception of what was happening and I really believed it to be true, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm. How did you talk to them about this after? Did you wait a few years or, I mean, they knew what happened, right? How mm -hmm. was that, that conversation like? You know, that's been a, like I said, my, my boys, It hasn't been that traumatic for my boys. I, we have always talked about a lot of things. And after this, like we have very open conversations in the house. We talk about mental illness. We talk about anything the kids are going through. Like there are just very open and honest conversations about anything going on in the house. But mm -hmm. my daughter kept it to herself for a lot of years. And that's something that she struggled with, with feeling like I might disappear at any time. And mm -hmm. so You know, that's the one that makes me feel so sad because she's carried it with her. I don't feel like my boys have necessarily carried it with them. They were able to mm -hmm. shed it and move on. It feels like quite easily mm -hmm. from what they've told me and from what I've seen, but it's been harder for my daughter. Yeah, I, I can imagine. You know, she yeah. still works through. Yeah. And, and what were the first days like with your husband too? I mean, that conversation, was he, was he angry? Was he disappointed? Was he worried? Was he guilty? Did he feel guilty about it that maybe he was, you know, he did something because that's so common? He was not angry at, at all. He didn't do anything to make me feel bad. You know, quite the opposite. He 
he was so thankful that we got another chance that it, you know, that that wasn't the end for me and for us, you know, he was just so thankful for that. He, he's a man of a few words. So mm. like, he didn't open up and tell me exactly how he's feeling. I know he felt like he contributed to it because he changed his commitments and what he would take on and what he said yes to immediately. So I know that he recognized that getting to the point that I was at was a collective effort, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so he changed and was home more and helped more. And, you know, but he never made me feel bad. He was never angry about it. He was always just so thankful for mm -hmm. an opportunity to move forward. Yeah. And from our, what I hear from uh, your podcast, it changed your relationship too, right? A lot. It did. I mean, the thing is you go through something like that together. And, and again, it's one of the realizations that I realized like this is, he's the most important person in my life, you know, and my mm -hmm. kids. And it's, it's turned into, he's my best friend and it's made us stronger and everything we do now, before we could kind of live our own lives and be working on our own things and achieving our own things, just kind of side by side. And having this mental illness experience has definitely, we we're tag team partners. Now we can no longer do things side by side parallel. We have to be working together and tag teaming all the way through mm -hmm. to make sure that, you know, each of us is okay and we have what we need. So mm -hmm. he, he's really good at that. It sounds like your, your attempt was really a turning point in your life. And I'm sure it had a huge impact on your parenting style as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? And even the call you said, now we'll talk, did you, was it an open conversation family before or was it after what happened? We talked, but I don't think we were busy. So we just didn't have the same amount of time to really get into everything. And like after that attempt, I devoted a lot of time to the kids and we cut out all of those other activities. We just had so much time together. So, you know, we did talk before, but now I made it a point of going to all the hard places. And before I wasn't opposed to it, but they didn't always come up and we didn't always have the time to get to it. Yeah. And after like, we have the time because I made the time and we can get to any of it. And we do. Mm -hmm. Good. So change not, and it wasn't just a communication because you had to cut down on, on so many things they had too, right? Well, and this was one of the things that changed in our whole parenting. I mean, I've said the kids were young when this happened, but there were, I mean, I was doing what most typical moms do. You get up early and you pack the kids lunch and you drive them to school and, you know, go volunteer at school and pick them up from school and drive them to activities. And I couldn't do any of those things. Like I really had to recover on the couch for a while. So it kind of shifted everything that happened at home. And I, on the days that I would feel good, I would have to teach the kids how to do these things for themselves, because mm -hmm. especially with the medications, a lot of the mornings, I wouldn't even be awake. So mm -hmm. I couldn't wake up and get them out the mm -hmm. door to school. So instead, you know, I taught them how to pack a lunch. We have a fruit, a vegetable, and a protein. And when I would feel good, I would put Ziploc baggies in the fridge with a fruit, a vegetable, and a protein. But the kids were able to get up in the morning and pack their own lunch with that. And then mm -hmm. they knew what time to get out the door to the bus because I no longer took them to school. And my oldest, my oldest Max, he really stepped into 
he would cook breakfast for the younger kids. And, you know, if, if I was, if it was a day when they didn't have school, he would put a movie on for everybody until I woke up. I mean, he really was like my right hand man, but the kids learned how to do everything. They started doing their own laundry in early elementary school. They clean their own rooms. They know how to cook because we had to take turns. Like I no longer could carry that whole load all on my own. So we had to have everyone in the family step up to learn how to do that. And, you know, as a result, the kids are very independent. They are capable of handling anything and have been from a young age. Wow. They have confidence. Yeah. They know they can solve problems. They know they can do hard things. And it's been fun to watch them launch into adulthood with so much confidence and already having the skills that they need to succeed. Well, it sounds like, like the transformation was positive for all of you, for the whole family. So for us, let's end with the pandemic. How has that affected? Because when you were talking about, but we didn't have time. We, and, and, and then we changed and we had more time to be together. And is it too much time now to be together? I, <laughs> How has I, that affected your mental, your mental health? I feel like the pandemic has let the whole world in on a secret that I figured out 10 years ago. Life is so much better when it's simpler. You know, that's how I operate my life now. But to speak to the pandemic, I've been stable and doing well for a long time, for a lot of years. And I was surprised at how difficult it was when the pandemic started and the quarantine started and everybody was at home. I didn't expect it to have to take such a toll on my mental health and on the kids' mental health as well. Like it's important that. We have a simplified life, but it's also important that it's balanced by, you know, yeah. the right amount of productivity and the right amount of socializing. And it's important to have yeah. all of those things. So yes, I'm looking forward yeah. to getting back to a little <laughs> bit more of a normal situation where we can balance all of those things again. Yes. And, and it's exactly what you said. It's not a matter of just, okay, we need more time to be, to be with the kids But what the pandemic took away from us was the choice, right? Yes. Yeah, but it, you should be able to make the choice. Mm -hmm. I want to simplify my life. And the pandemic said, you're going to do it whether you want it or not. I'm interested to see if people will continue with the simplified life once it's no longer mandated. You know, mm -hmm. I know that I will because I chose it a long time ago and it's made my life better, but I'm yeah. curious to see if we'll become as busy again. Yes, me too. Me too. Because I think the decluttering in a way of your time was a positive thing. Yeah. I yeah. I think just not as accelerated as we were before and, and even people relationships now we're more selective. I mean, this, there are some people that, you know, we, I would, dedicate time to that now I'm going, I don't know I don't know if I would anymore you become yeah. more selective too so I don't think it was all bad I mean it has had a toll on mental health and especially youth I think that's what I see at least in our clinic and it really mm -hmm. has affected them but I think it showed us also what the priorities are yeah just like anything else I talk about this all the time like when you hit these situations there are some really hard parts about life. There are really hard parts about mental illness. There are really hard parts about the pandemic, but there are also silver linings that go along with it. And one of the keys I feel like for my own happiness is always trying to find the silver linings and focusing on that. Because the thing is, you can look at all the things that are wrong, 
and they're true. But you can also look at all the things that are right, and those things are also true. But if you focus on the things that are right and the silver linings, it just brings so much more joy and happiness and peace. Like it's such an easier way to move forward by focusing on the right things. Yes, 100%. Thank you so much for being with us. And I hope my listener now goes, you know, picks up maybe a notebook, writes down. It's it's even hard to see that now, though, because of the pandemic, you don't have as many activities, but you mm-hmm. all know what your life looked like before the pandemic. And I have to say, from a cultural point of view, Mikael, as a Brazilian, in looking at the American culture, Moms in Brazil, they're not as busy as here. It just seems like too much in the U.S. All these sports, all the activities, all the extras. uh, It's not like that there. Really, there isn't that much of a pressure and and all the expectations too. I think it's a a little bit more slower. There isn't isn't this. And also on the kids, because I see the kids, I mean, they don't stop. Right? They don't yeah. have time to stop and, and just relax and stay home. There's just so much going on all the time. They, they're expected to do sports. They're expected to do music. They're expected yeah. to, yeah, it's just too much. I remember my middle son, his favorite thing was go to the park and climb trees. And he would do it for hours. Like once we pulled out of all of those activities, he would go to the park and just climb trees and just sit in the top of the tree for hours. And I just thought that's what kids need. You know, I don't know that he needed all of the flag football and the wrestling and, and the, all the, everything else we were trying to provide him with. I think he just needed Mm -hmm. time to climb trees. You know, did they ever say anything to you? Did they say, did they ever say anything like that to you? So how, what their lives were before and then after, and if they liked it or not, did they ever talk about that? I actually haven't asked them about that. That's a good question though. I should. Yeah. Oh, let us know. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much for being with us. And again, listen to her podcast, Thriving with Mental Illness. They're a great couple to listen to. And next week, we're going to be here with Adam. And we're going to hear from his point of view, how all these changes affected him and, and the pros and cons and dealing with the suicide attempt and mental illness in the family. So for you guys and for you girls too, I mean, for the spouses especially, be here next week, listen to it because you're going to hear from his point of view and his perspective. And he's a wise guy. And he's a wise guy. Yes, I can. I can. I have to agree with that because I listen to him. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for the invitation, Paula. You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com.